0: We're going to read John eleven one through forty six and then we'll pray. now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. and it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, "Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick." but when Jesus heard it, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples therefore said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. Then Jesus, therefore, said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, therefore, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So when Jesus came... He found that he'd already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary still sat in the house. Martha, therefore, said to Jesus, "'Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died.' Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she arose quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. The Jews then, who were with her in the house, And consoling her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews were saying, Behold how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? Jesus therefore again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou heardest me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that thou didst send me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary... And beheld what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a mighty miracle. Jesus called to this man Lazarus, our brother. He was dead, and Jesus said, come forth. And he came back to life. Lord, what an amazing thing. What power. We give you glory for demonstrating your power. And Lord we do believe. Jesus said he wanted his disciples to see these things and to believe. We hear them. We read it. We read it. And Lord, we confess you. We believe. Father, glorify your name in the preaching of the word this morning that we all may believe and grow in grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Good morning.
1: Great to be back. Amazing time with youth camp. and then Debbie and I had a little bit of time over at... Uh, Holy Lake, and the weather was awesome. It was fabulous. Planning to spend no more than three minutes per verse this morning, so we'll be done within a little over three hours. Yeah. Just kidding. Merriam-Webster defines the word irony as incongruity between the actual result of a sequence of events and the normal or expected result. If you throw an adequately large bucket of water on the burning embers of your campfire at the end of the the evening, you'll get the result that you expected. The the fire will be out. But if you throw that same bucket of water on a pan of flaming bacon grease that's sitting on your stovetop that you left too long on too high a temperature, you'll get an adventure in irony. See, water and grease don't mix, and the grease is lighter than the water, so the water goes through the grease, down to the bottom of the pan, and as soon as it hits that already overheated pan, it vaporizes, and the grease forms a barrier on top of it that contains the the steam and creates pressure. So guess what happens? You've made a little bomb, and the grease goes everywhere, and now the flaming pan of grease is a flaming kitchen. At this point, of course, you're standing there going, hmm, that's ironic. No, it's, it's not what's going through your mind. But, but it's a pretty good uh, illustration of irony. But the interesting thing about all that is that the irony only exists because the expectation was faulty. If you talk to some of the guys in this congregation who know about the physics of fire suppression, like Bob Quinn and Tim Roberts, who's a fire, fireman, uh, they would know exactly what to expect, and there'd be no surprise and there'd be no irony because their expectations would be in line with reality. From our perspective, God often deals with us in ironic ways, but the reason that they seem ironic is because our expectations are faulty. We are misinformed. Or we've been properly informed and we're ignoring what he's had to say to us. The reason that our expectations are wrong is because we're not paying attention if we have indeed beheld what God has has told us. One of the most startling ironies that we encounter in the Gospel of John, which is full of ironies, is right here in this passage. And it has to do with how Jesus responded when the report of Lazarus' impending death came to him. And it turns out that the very fact that his response strikes us as ironic should drive us to examine our expectations. As the passage begins, we learn that a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Verse 2 tells us in advance that this is the same Mary who in the next chapter would anoint Jesus with very, very expensive ointment and wipe his feet with her hair in preparation for his coming funeral. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. Now John the Gospel writer goes out of his way to make sure that we know that Jesus loved these people dearly. In verse 3, some friends of Mary and Martha show up where Jesus is and they say to Him, Lord, behold, He whom You love is sick. And then in case we missed it, in verse 5, John comes right out and says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And the very next thing that John says is, When therefore He heard that Lazarus was sick. In other words... Because Jesus dearly loved this man and his sisters, when he heard that he was sick near to the point of death, he did what? How would you finish that statement if you were basing, basing it on your expectations? Well, everyone was still talking about how Jesus had healed a man who had been blind from birth. That was a really big deal. Never happened before. That was in John chapter 9. And Jesus had been healing diseases of all kinds in Galilee and in Judea that many of the people in Bethany had heard about and in some cases directly seen. So what would you expect Jesus who could heal any disease to do when he had just received word that Lazarus... A friend whom he loved dearly was on his deathbed just a three days journey from where Jesus was. Well, verse 6 tells us what Jesus did. Therefore, that means because of his deep love for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. (laughs) That can't be. Somebody check another Translation. You know, there's got to be somebody that has one that says he didn't stay two more days where he was. But don't bother checking. I've already looked. Every translation says exactly that. Why would he do such a thing? Well, he gives us the big picture answer in verse 4. Right after he gets the news of Lazarus' impending death, he says, this sickness is not unto death. In other words, the outcome will not be death for Lazarus in the final analysis. But it is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Notice that what glorifies God glorifies the Son of God here. God, Jesus is, the, is God the Son. Now here's something that you and I need to understand. And we need to understand it without any Confusion. God often withholds the deliverance that we want in order to provide a deliverance that glorifies Him much more marvelously. Our first impulse is to think, okay, well, that's great for Him, but it makes submitting to Him kind of a dicey proposition. We think it means that God is capricious and uncaring, that He glorifies Himself at the expense of our well-being. So we don't know what to expect. But for those, beloved, for those whom He has made His own, nothing could be further from, from the truth. If you're a child of God, His greatest glory is your greatest good. Let me say that again. If you're a child of God, His greatest glory is your greatest good. You know why He created you? To glorify Himself. You know why you exist? To glorify the One who created you. Those who refuse to honor the Son even as they honor the Father will still glorify God through their condemnation. But if you're God's child through faith in His Son, You have his promise that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. His greatest glory is your greatest good. If you don't buy into that yet, you can be absolutely sure that God's going to teach it to you, no matter what that takes. And if you forget it, you can be sure that he's going to teach it to you again. Every single time that God does what he had in mind instead of what we had in mind, that is infinitely better on every front. It's greater glory to him and it is greater blessing to you, not to mention greater blessing through you to others. There's one more critically important element, though, to that that worldview-changing truth, And until we buy into it, this other element strikes us as especially ironic and surprising. Let's just say that you and I are willing. In fact, we are delighted when God provides for us a different kind of deliverance than we asked Him for. There's still one more point on which He requires that we submit our way to His way. And that's the timing. The greater, more God-honoring deliverance that He has in mind often demands that you and I have to wait. In fact, it might even demand that we have to wait until after our physical body has died. God uses delay very strategically. In chapter 9, He healed a man blind from birth. That man had suffered the effects of blindness from the first day of his life. And he was born into a culture that was very unfriendly to such limitations. When he reached a certain age, his parents were unable to continue to provide for him. So he had to become a beggar on the streets. And he went to the most most trafficked area of Jerusalem, just outside the temple grounds. And he was there every day. And that's how he stayed alive. Jesus told his disciples at the beginning of John chapter 9 that the reason that man had been born blind was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had been that man and I had overheard that declaration by Jesus, I can tell you what I would have been tempted to say at that point. Lord, it would have been really nice if God had chosen to display his works in me a little sooner. Right? We think, okay, God, we get that You use our suffering under the curse to bring glory to Yourself. We get that You're always glorified when we proclaim Your goodness and faithfulness in the midst of suffering. We might not be very good at doing that sometimes, but we get that. But, Lord, timing is everything. If You really love us, You won't let our suffering last longer than we think is reasonable, right? We have our Lord's vivid answer right here in John chapter 11. As Lazarus lie dying in Bethany of Judea, Jesus remained two more days in the other Bethany, where John the Baptist first baptized, across the Jordan, roughly a three days journey from where Lazarus was dying, and he waited not... He waited not because He did not love Lazarus and Martha and Mary, but precisely because He did love them. So what was Jesus' strategy behind that delay? He didn't really have to tell us, but He does. God does that a lot. After waiting two days, He told His disciples it was time to head to Judea, where Lazarus was. The disciples, of course, politely reminded Him that The Jews in Judea had just tried to stone him to death the last time he was there, as if Jesus had forgotten that that was the normal course of action every time he set foot near the temple. Jesus pointed out to them that the time remaining to him before his crucifixion was becoming very, very short. The events in this chapter are probably just days before that event. It was time for the light of the world to shine very brightly. Jesus knew that Lazarus had already gone from being near death to being well and duly dead. He had a little conversation with his disciples about that, about the meaning of the word sleep in reference to Christians. It means they're dead. He said, Lazarus is dead. And then he said to his disciples in verse 15, Listen. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. Now let's go. Why the delay? So that you may believe. The delay was not random. It was not uncaring. It was engineered by God to bring the disciples and Mary and Martha and yes, even Lazarus to believe. But didn't all of those people, with the exception of Judas, already believe in Jesus? What belief was Jesus at work here to impart to them that they didn't already have? Well, his conversation with Martha gives us his answer to that very important question. When Martha came out to meet Jesus before he made it all the way to to their house, she said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she said, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. Seems pretty clear to me that Martha believed that God would raise her brother from the dead if Jesus would just ask Him to. But that fell short of what Jesus was calling Martha to believe about Him. See, it was one thing for Martha to believe that Jesus' father... Had power and authority over death and life, and that Jesus had his father's ear whenever he asked him for something. That was the way it had always worked with the prophets, right? The faithful prophets. They had God's ear, and when they asked God for something, he generally did it. But it was another thing for Martha to believe that that very same power and authority over death and life. Belong to Jesus himself. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You might think that statement reveals that Martha was finally entirely on board. But she wasn't yet where Jesus was taking her. See, even the Pharisees who so militantly opposed Jesus believed in the resurrection and they believed in an afterlife. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus cuts to the chase. He said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. There's the incomparable truth about Jesus that is driving this entire event. This is what Jesus was intent on bringing Martha and Mary and Lazarus and His own disciples to understand and to believe. He went on from that all-important proclamation to the all-important question that always comes with it. He said to Martha, Martha, do you believe this? That questions what this passage is all about. Not just for Martha, not just for Mary or Lazarus or the disciples or the Jews, but for us, for you and me. Do you believe this? Martha's answer was very, very good, but it still didn't go far enough. She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. She was getting close. Those things were all absolutely true, but they didn't even address what Jesus had just said. She wasn't quite where Jesus was taking her yet, but she was primed for the astounding object lesson that he was going to use to teach it to her. And now it was Mary's turn to be primed. As we turn our attention to Jesus' interaction with Mary, I think we need to take a close look at Jesus' own response to the expectations and the words of the other people in this passage. When Mary came to Jesus, the first words out of her mouth were the exact same words, word for word, that Martha had spoken to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The next verse warrants very special attention. I'm going to read the Holman Christian Standard Translation because I believe it does the best job with the original language in this verse. And I think it's important. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was angry. He was angry in his spirit and deeply moved or troubled. The root verb there literally means snorted with anger. The other Gospels use that word to describe very stern warnings or rebukes. But this verse isn't talking about a public display of anger or a public rebuke from Jesus. It's talking about what was going on in his heart, in his spirit, as he saw and heard all the things that were going on here. The very same word is used again in verse 38. It says, then Jesus, angry in himself again, came to the tomb." Between those two verses that speak of Jesus' anger is the well-known shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. And I don't think you can understand why he wept if you don't understand what those other two verses are getting at. Why was he angry and why did he weep? Many excellent commentators believe his anger here was directed not against anything that the people in the passage were saying or doing, but against the curse of death itself perhaps more rightly, against the sin that moved God to inflict that curse on all mankind and on all creation. Honestly, I can't see God being angry about the curse because he's the one who who imposed it on his creation. I can see him being angry about sin. Nobody knew better than Jesus what it was going to cost to undo that curse. He was just days away at this point from suffering that unspeakable cost in our place. And nobody understood better than Jesus the pain that the curse of death had brought upon mankind. The pain that his dear friends Mary and Martha were suffering at that moment. It's not hard to come up with reasons to explain Jesus' deeply emotional response here. But beloved, I'm convinced there's another facet to his response that the passage itself demands that we see. In verse 33, and again in verse 38, John tells us that Jesus was deeply angered inside. And each of those verses begins with the words, Jesus, therefore. Which means they're each pointing back to something that just happened or that was just said. I believe if you look at the verse immediately before each of those two verses, it becomes evident what the heart of Jesus' anger was. In verse 32, Mary said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And in verses 36 and 37, when they saw Jesus weeping, the Jews said to one another, Behold how He loved Him! But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of Him who was born blind have kept this man from dying? The Jews attributed Jesus' tears to His great love for Lazarus, and that certainly is not hard to to fathom. But they saw them as tears of grief over Lazarus' death. And knowing that he could have healed Lazarus from abundant evidence, they were dumbfounded as to why he delayed in coming and let Lazarus die. It made no sense to them. Let me ask you a question. How many times in John's Gospel... Do the Jews get it right when they are assessing Jesus' motives for anything that he does and says? Not very often, if at all. Do you think this is the exception? I, I think it's not. I believe that what John records here concerning Jesus' agonized and angry response to the expectation And the words of other people in this story is put here to draw our attention to something very important about our own expectations. Expectations we have of God that provoke His righteous anger because they so badly miss the truth about His character and His purposes toward us. Expectations that in effect deny His love if He doesn't do things on our terms. I believe Jesus' anger and sorrow in this chapter are not fundamentally a response to the impact of the curse that had just resulted in the death of his dear friend. I don't believe that his tears fundamentally flowed from his empathy for the pain being experienced by Martha or Mary or their friends. I believe that both the anger and sorrow that John attributes to Jesus in this passage are provoked by the spiritual short-sightedness of everybody else in the passage. In verse 39, when Jesus commands that the stone be removed from Lazarus' tomb, Martha protests, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. In the next verse, verse 40, the anger and sorrow in Jesus' heart, I believe, finally find expression in his words. He responds to Martha's protest saying, Did I not say to you, If you believe, you will see the glory of God. When Jesus says to someone, Did I not say to you? You can consider that a rebuke. As the men removed the stone from the tomb, at Jesus' command, he prayed to his father saying, Father, I thank you that you heard me, and I knew that you hear me always, but because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Many of you have read commentators who have said it's a good thing he used the name Lazarus, or the graves would have emptied. And Lazarus, who had been dead for four full days, stood up, still wrapped in burial cloths, and came forth. This is the third time in this chapter that Jesus says the reason for doing what He did, the specific reason, was that they may believe. In this case, that they may believe that You, Father, sent Me. But Martha and Mary and the disciples and... Some of the Jews already believed that Jesus was sent by the Father. They had said it many times. So I'll ask again. What had they not yet come to believe that they needed very much to believe about Jesus? That God sent Jesus into the world not to deliver us from the temporary effects of the curse, but from the curse of death itself that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He didn't come to make the curse less painful now. He came to destroy the curse forever. I believe what, what made Jesus angered and filled Him with sorrow was that those who knew Him best and loved Him most were still looking to Him for temporary Deliverance instead of everlasting resurrection life. So what did Jesus do? He gave them a marvelous preview. The raising of Lazarus was still a temporary deliverance. Lazarus was going to die again and be raised again. But it was a crystal clear preview of the permanent everlasting deliverance that Jesus would accomplish through his own death resurrection very soon after this beloved Jesus is not our great cosmic situation changer he's not our fixer he is not our vending machine for our name-it-and-claim-it demands to make our lives less threatening and more comfortable and to let our earthly lives last as long as possible Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Beloved, whoever believes in him shall live even if he dies. See, we want Jesus to help us dodge the curse, but Jesus came to destroy the curse. We want him to prolong our lives and make them as pain-free as possible, but he came so that the death of our physical bodies wouldn't even interrupt that which is life indeed for all who trust in him and brothers and sisters it grieves him when we spend our lives looking to him to do less than he came to do he came to destroy the curse and to give life where there was none and right here and now he enables us to live in the midst of the curse as overcomers of the curse completely unafraid of anything that we suffer because of the curse because we know that the momentary light affliction that we experience here is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison 2 Corinthians 4:17 The problem is that we so often think and speak and live and even pray as if the Christian life is all about God giving us a bunch of fleeting little exemptions from the curse. If Jesus can heal every disease, we say, okay, I shouldn't have to be sick. If Jesus is going to end injustice, we say, well, I shouldn't have to be subject to injustice. If Jesus can deliver us from the hard things in life, then surely it's appropriate for us to expect Him to do so. But it isn't, because that's not why He came. What if Jesus did not come to give us a bunch of fleeting little exemptions from the curse? What if even the miraculous deliverances that He accomplished during His earthly ministry were never an end in themselves What if they were all pictures of an infinitely greater deliverance to come? And what if it is that deliverance and that deliverer that is to be the entire and only object of the hope that sustains us, empowers us, and motivates us every single day of our lives? Fixing our hope completely, completely on the grace to be revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what the word completely means? It means without exception. Beloved, if you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, please hear me. If you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, you are never in urgent need of deliverance. Anytime you think you are, you're wrong. You're already destined for His kingdom to dwell in His beautiful presence. You are already the object of His steadfast covenant love every second of every day. Nobody and nothing can ever take that away from you. You are already signed, sealed, and very soon to be delivered into His glorious presence. Neither tribulation nor persecution, nor distress, nor famine, nor nakedness, nor peril, nor sword, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall ever be able to separate you from the everlasting love of God in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? No matter what happens to you in this earthly life, if you belong to Jesus, you're going to be perfectly fine forever. Because the one in whom you trust is the resurrection and the life. And there is no other life. If you're a child of God through faith in Him alone, the time left to you on this earth is not supposed to be about God delivering you. He already has. And the finishing out of that amazing deliverance is as certain as if it already happened. The time that remains to you on this earth isn't supposed to be about God delivering you. You know what it's supposed to be about? God delivering other people through you. It's supposed to be about you reminding also, reminding your brothers and sisters that they worship and serve the One who is the resurrection and the life and that it is always, always well with their souls. That doesn't mean that we are unfeeling or uncaring. We are to enter into the suffering of our brothers and sisters. Be right there in the thick middle of it. But as we are, beloved, we remind each other all the time that it is well with our souls now and forever. We should rejoice that God loves us so much that He has seen fit to leave us for now in the refiner's furnace of life under the curse. Because there are still people here who are stuck under the curse. He didn't leave us here because He doesn't love us. He left us here because He does. How do Christians act when we actually get the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Well, the reality of Christ's absolute victory over the curse of death makes us do crazy things. Things that the world just can't even understand. We don't trivialize physical death. Every death involves painful separation, at least for a time. And every death is a very sobering reminder to us of our own rebellion against our Creator that brought this terrible curse of death on all mankind and all of creation from God's own hand. But we have been freed from enslavement to the fear of death that holds this world in a crippling grip. When God delays for a long time to save us out of great suffering in this life or even withholds that deliverance until our physical body has died, we don't question His goodness or His faithfulness. We have no affection for some inferior hope that will free us from suffering here and now because we know without a doubt that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. We know that. I watch my beloved brother... And friend Gary Boatman, year after year as he faced the relentless threat of insulin shock and shattered bones and infected wounds and amputation while his beloved wife participated in his suffering with him every single day. But let me tell you, Gary's life was not about being delivered from all that so he could finish his life comfortably. His time on this earth was a journey not merely of earthly deliverance delayed, but of earthly deliverance withheld. But Gary didn't expect deliverance from pain and suffering in this life because he knew that wasn't what God had promised. He knew that what God had promised was infinitely better. So even in the very last conversation I ever got to have with my brother Gary, even as he struggled mightily with the thought of leaving his dear vicky to finish life without him i never once heard anything come from his mouth that didn't proclaim the faithfulness of god never once his sense of humor and his contagious joy persisted to his last breath i've had the privilege Recently of witnessing firsthand and in all kinds of circumstances The daily joy and faithfulness of another dear brother in Christ Whose wife left him right after he finished seminary Because she didn't want the life to which God had called him That brother has never believed that God somehow owed it to him To deliver him from the challenges of singleness Even though that's not what he would have chosen His life has been filled to overflowing with usefulness as a joyful servant of his awesome God whose love was proven beyond all question at the cross. If it seems unexpected and uncaring and confusing to you that a loving God would demand those kinds of things from those that he dearly loves, I urge you to go home and look harder at this passage. If you're paying attention, it'll revolutionize your life. The next time God answered your heartfelt request is not now or not even in this life, and you ask him why not, will you rejoice that his answer is for my greater glory and your greater good? Will that answer be sufficient for you? Will it be delightful? you it can be it can be the crucified resurrected and ascended Jesus has a question for you and it's the same question he asked Martha it's a really really important question he declares of himself I am the resurrection and the life he who believes in me shall live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die his question to you is very straightforward Do you believe this? If you came here today as one who already believes in Jesus as the resurrection and the life, your answer to that question every single day determines how you live, how you pray, what you expect from God, and what you tell other people to expect from God. Do you believe this? And if you came here today as One who has never trusted in Jesus Christ to save you forever from the penalty and the power and one day the the very presence of your sin. Your answer to that question today, today, determines whether today you remain under the curse that you deserve just like all the rest of us or whether you are instead destined to eternal life in the glorious presence of God. For a closing prayer, I'm going to read it's the concluding verses of the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. You'll get the connection. Dear Father, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Father, we praise you for the salvation that gives us this unexpected eternal vision, this unassailable hope and this untouchable confidence. We praise you in the name of Jesus, the resurrection and the life.